0: I guess if I could really wave that one, the thing that would matter most to me would be that every single child in the world could be brought up in such a way that his or her contact with nature could be sustained.
1: I'm honoured today to speak to Jonathan Porritt. Jonathan is an environmental activist and has been fighting for nature since the 1970s. He was a prominent leader of the Green Party, formerly the Ecology Party in the UK. And was the inspirational director of Friends of the Earth until 1990. In 1996, he founded Forum for the Future, advising leading organizations in both the public and private sector on sustainability issues. He's passionate about promoting solutions to today's multiple problems and working with young people, which is the one thing above all else that keeps him hopeful today. Welcome. Jonathan Porritt. Hi, Jonathan. It's absolutely lovely to talk to you. How are you doing in the lockdown situation? And where am I speaking to you from at
0: the moment? I live in Cheltenham, and I am kind of in, in a weird sort of way, quite happy. I'm literally self-isolating as my wife is looking after her mother, so um, I uh, (laughs) am here all on my own and. it's just been such spectacularly nice weather. So I have been taking my constitutional walks and enjoying spring and all that kind of stuff. So apart from the fact that the world is collapsing and people are in utterly miserable circumstances and the virus seems as uh, complicated for us to deal with as ever, apart from all of that, it's okay.
1: We're very lucky as well because we have a farm. So I can't imagine what it would be like yeah. to be locked in an apartment somewhere. We got a request to do a virtual walk around the nature walk from somebody in South Africa in a flat. I know you're a nature lover, having volunteered age 15 with Friends of the Earth. And I think that was 1986. So um, how did you become an advocate for nature?
0: Yeah, Um, I was lucky in that I spent quite a bit of time living in New Zealand when I was... um, 18, 19, 20, sort of between school and university. My parents were living in New Zealand at the time. And one of the things I did there was to plant thousands and thousands and thousands of trees, in fact, more than 200,000 trees over a a sort of three, four-year period. And um, it was on a very scrubby bit of land just north of the main city, uh, north of Auckland. But it was... a particularly special bit of land because it had one bit on it, three acres, which was called the cathedral. And that was the only bit of this land that was proper native bush, proper New Zealand native bush. All the rest had been cut down, turned into scrub land, grazed by sheep. So there wasn't anything special about it at all. But this little patch of land was just quite amazing. And I spent so many hours planting trees on this place and then always taking refuge, as it were, in the cathedral when the rain became too too difficult to deal with or it was too cold you have to plant trees in the winter obviously um and it was amazing and I spent as much time on the land then as I've ever spent throughout the rest of my life so that was really what got me into it. Wow that's
1: that's absolutely wonderful what type of were you planting?
0: Oh I was just planting exotic radiata pine trees so not not the special New Zealand bush or anything like that this was a a sort of tree farm, which uh, in the end we um, we cut down and sold when the timber was uh, thirty years old. That's what you do with tree farms in New Zealand. It only takes thirty years to get these beautiful, tall, amazing trees. So that was the last time I I went out to help with the the logging, and that was the last time I saw the the cathedral. Oh,
1: that's a fantastic story. And then your next kind of step towards being a nature advocate? How did that happen? Or how did you get into being a voice for nature?
0: I joined the Green Party in 1974. So that's a long, a long, long time ago. And the Ecology Party, now the Green Party obviously, was the only political party in those days that seemed to have any direct connection with the land, with nature, with biodiversity, with ecosystems, that none of the rest of the political parties spoke about any of that stuff at all so for me it was really critical to be able to join a political party that wanted to put nature at the heart of our politics because if you don't put nature at the heart of the politics we end up in the kind of mess we're in today Um, whether you're talking about COVID-19 or destruction of the Earth's ecosystems or galloping climate change whatever it is you just end up in a mess so that was a big decision for me to take at that time Um, And I've been a member of the Green Party since then. So this whole area about the economy, nature and personal responsibility has been essentially my life's work, really.
1: Brilliant. And do you have a favourite plant or animal?
0: (laughs) I used to be a trustee of the Worldwide Fund for Nature of WWF, uh, um, 12 years in fact here in the UK not international but in the UK and of course WWF is focused on all of these amazing what I call the charismatic megafauna the sort of big brown-eyed creatures um, pandas and bears and you know all the wonderful things that people love tigers and so on and I became quite Hostile to the preferencing of charismatic megafauna, everything was about them. And nature isn't really like that, you know. Tigers are phenomenally beautiful, but they're just one species in, in massively complex ecosystems. So I think it was about that time. So this is in the eighties that my my eyes turned towards something called the slime mold, which is my favourite species. And <laughs> <laughs> these are quite astonishing creatures, and there are there are. Um, hundreds and hundreds of different species of slime mold. I think there may be more than a thousand all over the world. So we do have slime molds here in the UK, but the ones I got to know about were in the rainforest when um, Friends of the Earth was doing its campaigning about the rainforest, and, and we learned the sort of important, critical importance of slime molds to the whole uh, fragile way in which the rainforest works. Here in the UK, they are quite, they are quite special. They're little single-celled organisms, and when during the autumn, they, that's when they kind of come alive, as it were. This is when they move into their active phase. And they form these kind of great multi bodies. So tiny single-celled organisms come together in these multi-celled bits of glob, to be honest. I mean, if you see them on the forest floor, if you can see them in the new forest, they're not beautiful or anything, but they, they are critical to the well-being of forests. Woodlands and forests. So they eat a lot of the stuff, the detritus that's left over. And then, even more amazingly, once they've kind of eaten everything there is to eat in a particular area, then they have some mechanism. Nobody knows how this happens because they don't have brains really. But by some astonishing mechanism, they then turn themselves from these single celled fungal organisms into spores. And these spores then are blown everywhere else in in the woodland. Well, I say everywhere else. They're not blown very far, centimeters or inches, but that's far enough to get going next time around when they have to eat things again. So the more I learn about slime moles, the more I love slime moles. So that's probably a bit counter to people's normal perception, but they do it for me.
1: Yeah, well, that, that is fantastic. They sound absolutely magical. And I think you'll really resonate with all the kids at the moment because they're, uh, they're addicted to slime and making slime and slime videos. So we can definitely do some kind of a blog about slime and, and bring the good old slime holes in. <laughs> so that is really magical. Do you feel spiritually connected with nature?
0: I've always felt, felt some kind of spiritual connection. Maybe maybe even goes back to that little clump of native bush called the cathedral. But it's always been clear to me this is not just a, a scientific, materialistic set of relationships between us and the natural world. And for me, there's always been something very clearly part of our spirituality, part of our connectivity with everything else, with all living creatures on this planet. And I have felt that really from from the very first so it was always a bit astonishing to me particularly when I was in the Green Party or Friends of the Earth to discover that for most people that was considered to be pretty weird and wacky basically environmentalism was about science and politics and all the rest of it and doing all these really fantastic campaigning things but don't mention the human spirit don't talk about our spiritual connectivity with the natural world because that's just a little bit that's going to sort of put a question mark over our wonderful scientific reputation. But I don't really get that. And maybe it's because a lot of my early inspirations were people who were very close to understanding the importance of indigenous people, for instance, where to ask, is your connection with nature spiritual or not would be ridiculous, because on what other basis would you be connecting with nature were it not through that deep? spiritual set of uh, connectivity. So it's mattered a lot to me and it's sustained me a lot. And it's been an important, really important part of my work as an activist when things have got tough over the uh, many years, 45 years. I've often used my love of nature as a way of um, kind of putting things to rights in my own mind and carrying out some short term temporary healing. (laughs) Um, So it's it's featured large in my life and it still does.
1: That's wonderful. Um, did you ever have any interesting conversations with indigenous people about nature or the connection with nature?
0: Well, I was very involved in Friends of the Earth's um, rainforest campaigns um, right through to the end of the 90s and spent quite a bit of time in Malaysia and um, Brazil. Well, not not a lot of time, but enough time. and. Working with um, Anita Roddick, for instance, in the body shop um, after that, I've met a lot of Indigenous leaders. But I'm, I've done it mostly through reading and hearing about these things and listening to their stories and knowing amazing um, people and organizations like Survival International, which has been a, a go to organization for me for many, many decades, um, one of the most important NGOs in this world protecting the interests of. Indigenous people around the world, and and I've been subscribing to their newsletter and supporting them for as long as I can remember. So that's really my source of of information.
1: Wonderful. I remember you over forty years ago fighting for the rainforest um, in an office under a big pile of papers and manuscripts with maps of the rainforest pinned up all around the walls of a tiny little office when I was volunteering. So still at it, which. Um, thank you are there any positive actions you can suggest for people that they can do to support nature
0: i just think this stuff comes more easily to people if they have the privilege of being close to or in a place where nature is alive and well and i'm really very mindful of this at the moment because the contrast between people who are able to enjoy a garden or able to enjoy access to a park in this COVID crisis. And those who aren't, who are are sort of locked up basically in flats where there's nothing much that you can do to connect with nature other than look out the window and see this beautiful blue sky all around you. Um, I think that those of us who are lucky enough to get access to nature just need to understand the privilege that that is, and be properly respectful of it and do what we can in those spaces to ensure that nature can thrive alongside our use of it. So for a lot of people, that's the way in which you might garden so that you are respecting that kind of co-creation story with nature rather than trying to impose this astonishing model of top-down control over everything. For other people, it may just very simply be when one is out and about and walking, just to look, to understand, to observe much more closely, sometimes to be silent, to think about the beauty of nature around us. I do think one of the most astonishing things going on in the COVID-19 crisis is the number of people now who are commenting on birdsong. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I cannot imagine any, any other crisis in human history where birdsong would suddenly be featuring so prominently in the way people are seeing some of the upsides of this stuff so I, I love all of that and just being respectful of, of, of those things is important I don't think there's I don't think people need to sweat this one it ought to come naturally just give yourself space to be in nature and enjoy it for what it is
1: mm. and if you look carefully enough you might see the slime mold <laughs>
0: <laughs> not yeah. in, not. In i don't think but <laughs> no, no, okay.
1: so i had for the first episode i had a bit of bird song that i got off the internet and my brother commented that it actually had crickets in the background which wasn't very um <laughs> it wasn't right for ireland so i thought right i better go and so- source another bit and i went down into the rocks here um thinking i'll, t- I'll record a little bit of bird song it was phenomenal i couldn't okay. A better one. I just pressed record and we we got 20 seconds of everything. So, yeah, 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 the birds are happy happy about it. Yeah. So what are your favourite or inspiring books about nature? Do you have anything you'd like to recommend to people?
0: Um, Well, I'd like to recommend a couple of things, really. Firstly, The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. Now, for most people in their later stages of life, you've probably forgotten... How amazing, Doctor Zeus is! But the Lorax is just this, l- just priceless little gem of a book, uh, showing both sides of human nature. Really, the insane, greed-driven industrialization of everything in the natural world, and then somehow, this notion that we there is something in us which recognizes how utterly forlorn and stupid this is and promises or provides the promise that we can actually get it um, sorted out if we do things differently so I've loved that book for God knows forever I can't remember a time when when I didn't have a sort of quick read of the Lorax just to cheer myself up the other book which is very close to my heart is the um, Peregrine by J.A. Baker and um, people may have cottoned onto that book more recently because it's just been read by David Attenborough as part of, I'm not sure what it was, anyway, a BBC programme, one kind or another. And um, it's it's the most powerful, amazing book about just the life of a peregrine falcon. But you have to take it slowly and you just have to be in the right space to enjoy it and not sort of flick through the pages, sort of thinking, when am I going to get to the end of the next chapter? You just have to be in it. So these are very contrasting kinds of, um, of literature. But I've just been using some of my, my um, time at home, as it were, to sort out my bookshelves. And that has been a joyful experience, actually, because everything just piled up higgledy piggledy. and Now I've done this great. big clear out, not clear out, clean of the bookshelves so as to get them in the right order and everything. That's been just brilliant.
1: Lovely. So if you come up with any other ones, um, I'll add them to the show notes. <laughs> um, I've got the Lorax, but I'll definitely get the Peregrine book.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. And the Peregrine is one of my favorite animals too. It's, I think it has a great message. It has the broadest range of vision of any animal on Earth and the sharpest focus.
0: Yeah. So uh, is
1: Yeah. You can see a mouse yeah. and it can see to the horizon. Thank you. That's so great recommendations. If you had a magic wand, what would be the one thing you'd do for the planet right now?
0: Well, the technical answer is that I would make sure that every government in the world introduced a carbon price. Because, uh, obviously not the place to go into here, but we have and this... And I saw it interest, where, as much we, as have the, we have a massive crisis, as everybody knows, in terms of the climate emergency. And we're trying to deal with the climate emergency in a market-based economy. And in a market-based economy, it's about prices. It's about how much people are prepared to pay for things. So until we make people pay for the emission of these greenhouse gases that are causing the climate emergency, we're never going to get an intelligent, viable economy. So we have to have a system, economic system, that allows governments to impose A price on carbon. Every ton of CO2 and other greenhouse gases that we emit would carry a certain price, and that money could then be used to fund the restoration of nature to help deal with a lot of today's social problems. So there are many, many benefits that would come from that. However, that's that's a big wand you would need for that one. But it'll come. It'll come. I think I wrote about that first in the Green Party manifesto in 1979, and I probably thought to myself, "Yeah, it'll come, but it will." Well, it's the only way of dealing dealing with this in a market-based economy. So a little bit more realistically, I guess if I could really wave that one, the thing that would matter most to me would be that every single child in the world could be brought up in such a way that his or her contact with nature could be sustained, not just when they're at that age where the connection with the natural world is so natural that there's no question mark in their mind as to why they're doing it, but sustain it throughout their primary school years and then through into secondary schools. And I do quite a lot of work um, with the educational system. I'm uh, president of something called the Conservation Volunteers, which is trying to get people in general, but young people as well, into contact with uh, with nature. And the story about this is so simple, you can't believe it, that the more you time any person at any age and spend in nature, the greater their physical and mental well-being. And the fact that we've never had a single politician in this country who has really understood that is just such a devastating indictment of how limited their thinking is, despite the fact that the scientific evidence is just astonishing, as I said. So there we are. That would be my wand. Two swipes, carbon price, education in such a way that all children could stay in contact with the natural world.
1: Well, that's a fantastic wish. Um, That's what we try and do here for all ages. But we have a lot of children to the Borough Nature Sanctuary. And if you can introduce people to nature, um, they fall in love with it and then learn to conserve it. But if you can't fall in love with somebody you haven't met. So, yeah, it's all about bringing them in to nature and introducing them, engaging them.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Thank you so much for your time. It's an absolute
0: Mm honour. My pleasure. Very nice to see you again.
1: Hopefully you might come out to the Boren sometime when the lockdown is off and we'd love to show you
0: around. Well, that'd be brilliant. Thanks, Mary.